Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Chief Washington Correspondent for the New York Times and Managing Editor of First Draft, the great Carl Hulse. And remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. I'm going to get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to our sponsors, Real Paper, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, this has been uh, an extraordinary week in, in sports, particularly professional and college football in the last five or six games, uh, last five or six days, rather, some unbelievable games, uh, including one from a place you used to teach, Tulane, uh, great playoff games, getting ready for the TCU-Georgia championship game. But probably, uh, you know, one of the most tragic stories in the history of the game was the Buffalo Bills-Cincinnati game the other day when the uh, Buffalo safety, uh, I think his name is Damar Hamlin, was um, suffered a coronary, a serious coronary attack uh, after uh, a blow and was taken to the hospital in critical condition. I guess he's fighting for his life. And they stopped the game. They suspended the game, as I think they ought to have. Uh, and I think it's a, the, the human story is clearly, you know, paramount here. But the NFL is in a bit of a dilemma, too. What do they do about that game? I don't see any time they can play it. Okay. So, first of all, the coaches decided right away they weren't going to play the game. Right. That, that was pretty evident. And there was no, you know, the game must go on. That That's just not the modern world we live in. Now, this is the problem, Al. They can declare it no contest, or they could. I guess they could declare it a tie. They're probably not going to say like because Cincinnati was hit, Cincinnati wins. But I don't know if there's an option. The problem is this: if they if they declare it no contest, Kansas City will be fourteen and three, and Buffalo will be thirteen and three. Now, Dubai is really critical in the NFL. I mean, it's it, it's not a BS thing because you don't have to play the first week of the playoffs. All right, who gets to buy? Kansas City has a better winning percentage because they played one more game. Buffalo beat Kansas City in Kansas City. Back in back in, uh, in October, yeah. So this is something that's under discussion. There's a, a two-week lag between the championship games and the Super Bowl. All right, push everything back a week. And next Sunday, a week from Sunday, Cincinnati and Buffalo play. That game would get an audience like you wouldn't freaking believe, all right? Because this has real, and, and sports leagues are very cognizant of the integrity of the playoffs. And that's a that's a possibility that's being floated. Now, they like having a two weeks before the Super Bowl, but, you know, you want competition to decide it. This may be an option. I have no idea. Well, let, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Let me just explain this. Right now, each each conference has seven teams make the playoff. Six teams, uh, three uh, uh, play in the in the in the in the first round, and one team, the best team with the team with the best record, gets a bye. So that's the stakes James was talking about. Who gets that bye? 
that that's a week off. That's a that's an incredibly valuable. Um, right. The difference between being the four seed and the five seed, you could say, well, okay, shit. Yeah, right. Right? Right. It, but this is a distinction with a huge difference. And my experience with the NFL, and this is true of all sports leagues, they will take the path that has the most money. And the most money is to play the Bengals Bills game, you know, a week after the season ends and then push everything back a week. That that thing would get a freaking rating like you wouldn't believe. I agree with you, but they will lose a little bit of money by not having that extra week between the Super Bowl. They do an awful lot of stuff in that in that week. But but yeah, I, I like think it just you know builds yeah. up suspense and everything else. I I don't know, but they, they, they don't have did it play a game of tie. Yeah. All right, they declared no contest. I mean, well, if they if they declared a tie, it doesn't resolve the uh, the, the resolve, Buffalo right. Kansas City buy. Right, it doesn't resolve that. Right, and then can the commissioner by edict say, well, Buffalo gets the buy because they beat Kansas City in Kansas City? I, it's all. And then and then and then the Chiefs fans say, wait a minute, they were losing that game. They lost that game. You know, uh, we, we right. had a better record. Like everybody's right. gonna say, you know, you know, the one thing we know, you ain't gonna satisfy everybody, whatever you yeah. do. Yeah. So, James, one thing I say is I, I you know, when I, I did not see the replay of that. I don't want to see the replay of that awful scene on the on the um field. From what I read, uh it wasn't like it was a vicious hit uh, or, or anything. He was the defensive player. Uh it, it just was one of those absolute flukes where he hit a certain part of the uh, of the heart, I guess, or the bottom of the heart, and that caused a caused an arrest. So I don't think this was. A, I think I don't think those who say the game is too violent that this is uh, this is proof of that or has anything to do with it. I am more worried, however, about the Miami Dolphins quarterback Tia, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name because I always screw it up. So, yeah, had, had a terrible concussion. Two months ago, uh, I think it was John Harbaugh, the coach of the Ravens, said he'd never seen anything like, like that in football. Many people said he just shouldn't play again, came back, playing. Then he had another concussion last week. This this kid is a really good quarterback. You know, he he, he ought to stop. He ought to stop. He's just going to shorten his life. Well, you know, I, I think he'd say he'd have a short life. I don't know. But, you know, I've listened to I've had obviously a lot of cardiologists home. And this kind of thing typically does not, to the extent it happens, and it's very rare, it's more in baseball and soccer, where yeah. the ball hits you at a certain part of your chest and a soccer ball hits you. It, it, I don't think this, look, people have a, whether or not you want your grandson to play football is quite another question. I mean, I think people have legitimate questions about how violent the sport is, but I, 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 this is one instance where I, I I, I just don't think it it, it fits. Yeah, yeah. No, no I, I I totally agree. Look on a on a much more upbeat note. I don't know that there has ever been a better football story, long a narrative over the course of two seasons actually, uh, than Tulane. Uh, your uh, your teaching alma mater. Uh, it's right down the street from where you live. Uh, they were, and last year they were a crummy team. I think two and ten. This year, this year they had a good record, but they went to the Cotton Bowl to play Southern Cal. Now that you know, does Tulane really even belong in the same field with the powerful Trojans? Tell us, t tell us about how it ended. I'm going to tell you, but this is the text I got. 
from Daryl Burke, who was, I think he's been the chairman of the Tulane board and the Vanderbilt board, but he's a dear friend of mine, from, a very civic-minded guy. Over the last five seasons, FBS teams were 1 and 1,692 when trailing by 15-plus points in the final five minutes. Tulane made it two out of every 1,692 today. This is an unbelievable <laughs> stat. A couple other amazing features of the game. Time of possession was 2-1 to one USC, approximately 40 minutes to 20 minutes. USC didn't punt once. William throws for 465 yards and five touchdowns and was never sacked. Pratt played an incredibly gritty game and he completed only four passes until the final drive where he completed four and a touchdown. The Tulane University one-year win-loss turnaround was the greatest one-year turnaround ever in college football. The whole thing was mind-boggling. All right? That has got to be the most improbable college football game win maybe in the history of college football. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, I mean, Mary and I, you know, obviously we turned the LSU-Purdue game off, you know, a long time ago. And I could not believe what I was watching. I mean, it was it was just a stunning, stunning end. And, and, and Lincoln Riley just he beside himself. I mean, and they were trying. I mean, Southern Cal didn't they, they didn't they didn't mail it home. I mean, they they were playing their asses off. And that that he played that game another hundred times, and you know, get that result maybe one more time. Well, it's it's the most improbable ending, but the whole narrative, the whole two year narrative, is also one of the most improbable in the history of college football. So it's, it's right. uh, time of possession is everything. And how did Tulane defense ever? I mean, they were they were on the field twice as long as the Southern Cal defense. That was remarkable, you know. Well, it was a it was a great ending, and uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, you're gonna have to make it a, a choice now whether you go to Tulane or LSU games, James. Come on. <laughs> One game a lifetime. <laughs> By the way, LSU's gonna be LSU's gonna be top five team next year. All right, all right. We'll get we'll, we'll get that. We'll get to that next year. James, uh, we have seen an historic fiasco in the House as Republicans repeatedly saw it couldn't elect a speaker. There is no better person to explain all this than the New York Times chief Washington correspondent, Carl Hulse, the Michelangelo of congressional correspondence. <laughs> uh, I'll say right now we are talking uh, early uh, Wednesday afternoon uh the House is coming back. We don't know what the resolution might ultimately be. But as you suggested in your terrific piece today, Carl, this shows Republicans not only failed uh, to pick a speaker, they really showed that they aren't up to governance. It really suggests they're not ready for prime time. I mean, they're they're definitely going to have trouble. You know, yesterday, Al, somebody said, why do you keep doing this? You know, you've been doing it so long. I said, well, you always see something new. And I had never seen this before, uh, contrary to reports that I was there for the 1923 multiple <laughs> votes. Uh, you know, this is this is a group of people in the House Republican Conference, as they call themselves, as opposed to a caucus, uh, who 
really don't want to the government to work that well. This is this is their goal. They admit that. They're for limited government. They are used to voting no. I I wonder how many times uh, some of these guys have ever voted yes on a spending bill, for instance, right? So, you know, there it's we've all been around politics a long time. Usually there's a point where you go, okay, I got what I wanted. Well, there's not exactly a want with some of these guys. And that's where I think uh, Kevin McCarthy made his mistake. He, I think he thought going out there that it was going to be such a moment that a lot of these folks would cave and they just would go along with him. And as they showed, they're, they're not going to go along with anybody. So I think it's going to be a pretty, pretty rough couple of years. He gave them, Carl, anything they wanted. Uh, they they wanted a motion to vacate the uh, the chair. One five members got the ethics committee new rules for bringing uh, uh, committee assignments. He, he couldn't have given them any more. Yeah, I think I think they didn't they didn't get to the point where one member could move to vacate the chair, which actually is a demand by some of the some of the folks. Yeah. But yeah, he did, and you know he he's he's given away the store and he still hasn't taken the keys. So. Uh, they're stuck. And it's, you know, we were kind of making light of this yesterday, but it is a bit of a dangerous proposition because the House isn't, isn't organized. There is no House of Representatives right now. And, uh, I don't think that's a good thing for the country, even if you have that for a day or two. That's right. These members haven't been sworn in. They got to elect the speaker first. There's no members of Congress or no members of the House right now. To go back to all the concessions he made, even if he's not the speaker, it's going to be whoever is the speaker, whether it's him or someone else, is going to be very hard to change those, right? I mean, those are pretty locked yeah. in, I would guess. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to have to give a lot. You know, and uh, I've been down this road before uh, that. So every both times that uh, recently that the majorities have flipped, the Democrats, when they got back in. 2006 and the Republicans in 2010 or 11, everybody promises to run a more open house. We're going to have open amendment process and 72 hours to read the bill and all these things. And, you know, they usually last about two months because it, it just you just find out that you can't do things that way in the modern era. Listen, I side with a lot of the folks who say that too many deals are being cut by the leadership, you know, even members of the senior members of the appropriations committees are cut out. You know, these things are done at the last minute. Nobody knows what's in them. But uh, I'm not sure that the Republican push for a lot of these more open procedures are really about better governing. I think a lot of it is about less governing. Well, you you captured the I guess I call it the crazy element in that uh, in that conference. <laughs> I, I can't say that. I know you can't, but I think I, I think you said they want to defund, disrupt, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, dismantle. I would say destroy too. Uh, but let's talk about another group. There must be a dozen and a half Republican members who were elected in districts that Biden carried or almost carried. Five or six from New York, five from California. Tom Keene, Don Bacon out there, uh, and uh, Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania. What are are they doing? I mean, are are they trying to organize? Yeah, they're trying, but they're very frustrated, right? Because uh, they don't get the same respect that the folks on the other end of the ideological spectrum do. Because, well, because people know that they'll try and do the right thing, right? They want to govern. Uh, So, I mean, 
And they're holding out for McCarthy. You know, that's the okay, only Kevin. You know, Barney Frank had a a great line to me once when uh, the Republicans uh, had switched back and forth. And Barney said to me, he's like, uh, asking Republicans to govern is like asking me to judge the Miss America contest. I'll do it, (laughs) but I really won't enjoy it, right? And, uh, you know, that, that stuck with me for a while. There's an element of the Republican Party that, you know, sees government as an evil. But then you have the folks who you're talking about who are from districts where they want to do things, right? Here, t- uh, Mitch McConnell is out in, in Kentucky with Joe Biden celebrating pork, right, uh, for a big bridge project out there. I think one of the differences to me over the years that I've been here is that almost everybody used to come to Congress to get something. Right. Even if you were pretty conservative, you had a project or you had an idea or you had a a policy that you wanted to get. A lot of folks in the Republican conference came here to disrupt. There's really nothing they want except to make the government go away. And you know what? The government can't go away. Americans are pretty darn dependent on it. James. So, so Carl, let's hit the rewind button here. We talk about a motion to vacate. All right. right. Honestly, 10 days ago, I didn't know what the hell it was. And I suspect <laughs> that a lot of our listeners don't. So take us through what is a motion to vacate and why is it such a big deal? Right. How much a part of these negotiations? Yeah. So to most people, that sounds like you're getting kicked out of your apartment, right? Uh-huh. A motion to vacate. <laughs> uh, but the, so this was a little known uh, provision that really came up with Boehner in 2015, that this existed, uh, and that uh, one member of the House could propose a motion to vacate it, be what under a House is considered a privileged uh, motion, so you would actually get a vote on it. So that's how they forced Boehner out by threatening, and the person who was doing it, I think, was Mark Meadows, who uh, then later aligned himself with Trump, obviously. Uh, and he was saying, you know, we're going to embarrass you, humiliate you. We're going to force you out. Motion to vacate. So that worked and got Boehner out. Uh, of course, Kevin McCarthy then was trying to be, succeed Boehner. And they used it before he even got there to kind of force him aside because he didn't have the right wing lined up. And uh, when Pelosi came back, she toughened that up. She made it so you can't really do that. And, uh, of course, the Republicans now are demanding that they have the ability anytime they want to, at the current rule, I think Al said it right, that five of them could agree, or the proposal they want. I think Kevin McCarthy wants it to be half half of the Republicans would have to agree to to it. The uh, Freedom Caucus folks want five people to be able to say, okay, we're going to have a vote on the floor of the House to kick you out as Speaker. And they want the ability to do that. And that is their big sword, James, that they're going to hang over who's ever in there. And if you don't do what we say, and if you bring up a bill we don't like, or if you actually go over and visit Joe Biden at the White House, then we're going to have a motion to vacate and you're going to be in trouble. So, you know, is the job worth having if if that's what... Uh, that's what you got waiting for you whenever you try and do something. And that's why I think it's going to be so hard to govern. They could move to vacate on anything. So I'm going to make an observation. Uh, and I obviously want you to uh, weigh in and out. Uh, you can weigh in, too. But between the three of us, we've been around politics for a long time. And one of the things that after particularly brutal 
election in Pennsylvania in 1986, the campaign managers used to have a drink after, you know, and sort of. <laughs> and Scranton's campaign manager was a guy named Rick Robb, who was a kind of professional Republican. I think he was like a lawyer lobbyist. He was, he was a good, good guy. guy. And, and I said, Rick, this has to be the most brutal campaign you've ever been in. He said, oh, no, James, nothing compares to 76 Ford and Reagan. So they got churches that are still split. <laughs> and my observation is intra-party fights are much more intense than inter-party fights. I mean, the Democrats don't like the Republicans, okay? But I guarantee you that John Boehner hates Mark Meadows with a passion that would burn through anything more than he'll ever hate. Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi, anybody else? Is, is that you guys? Is that y'all's observation too, covering this? And going forward, this this thing is going to be very difficult to repair itself. Yeah, that's the bloodletting, right? You know, the the family bloodletting is always worse uh, than the bloodletting between people who don't know each other that well. I mean, think about the uh, a good comparison is the uh, say senators from the same state, from the same party. They're always way more at each other's throats than senators in the same states from different parties. So some of the worst relationships in Congress are guys, Democrats or Republicans who represent the same state, super competitive. Yeah, I yeah. mean, how, how, do you, how do you repair these uh, frayed relations? Because as Al said, these moderate Republicans, you know, one, this is embarrassing for them. Uh, and two, if they end up with somebody they don't want as speaker after, you know, holding out for McCarthy, I mean, they're going to consider them. They just got screwed by their own colleagues. So I think, you know, we all kind of expected this to happen. Right. But seeing it happen is a totally different experience. So before I turn it back to Al, it's like the Ukraine war. How, how does <laughs> It has to end, doesn't it? You mean, oh, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know how. And, you know, the damage also like the Ukraine where the damage is really being done. Right. You know, you're you're raising some of the buildings, some of the structures, the institution right now. Uh, I think some real, real damage is being done. Now, my story today, you know, I talked to Ken Buck from Colorado, conservative guy, but considered very reasonable. And uh, he's like, well. Oh, you know, the voters will forget this in a while. I don't know that that's the case. I mean, you know, the Republicans, the problem for the Republicans, as both of you guys know, is they didn't have the election that they thought they were going to have and were told they were going to have, uh, certainly by Kevin McCarthy, right? They expected a much better outcome, which would have spared McCarthy all the trouble he's having right now. So, uh, you know, it's uh, there's a certain sort of... Uh, reduce everything to rubble aspect among some of the Republicans. But, you know, they're going to get a speaker. They're, they're, something will give. We're not going to go, you know, for two years without a House of Representatives. Albert? Well, you know, I thought your I thought the Ken Buck quote that uh, you ended your piece on, the reason I feel very confident that he's wrong is because <laughs> it just, it's just not this week. It's not like we're going to have this big, you know, warfare uh, this week and then next week all will be fine. They're going to have warfare every week or every month. I mean, it's just whether it's going to be closing the government, the debt ceiling, whatever. Uh, and uh, so I just think they're not I, I just don't think, as I said, they're ready for prime time. McCarthy was, you know, had a bad hand in one way with these guys who wanted to destroy. But it seems to me he made some big mistakes, too. He's not a very strong guy. 
he was stupid to move into the speaker's office before he had the yeah. job. <laughs> the optics weren't good. And I think he relied on Trump uh, to some extent. And Trump can't deliver. Well, now that's going to be the test because Trump is now telling people, you know, back Kevin. Uh, but I don't I honestly don't know uh, exactly how much influence that's going to have. And, you know, some of these people are just not going to back him under any circumstances. I will say we were surprised, though, at the number, right? 19, 20. That, yeah. That's a big number. And uh, some of those people can kind of be won back over. But, you know, I don't. I don't know how he gets there, honestly, without a wholesale change and some kind of real uh, big moment. But the, uh, you know, the debt limit, that's kind of terrifying, right? You know, this is a, a real thing. And as somebody I've covered, I've been writing, I hate to say this, guys, I've been writing debt limit stories since about 1986. But I'm sure, Al, you can probably go back farther than that. Oh, oh, and, you're just a rookie at that, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it always, we always knew that it was going to get resolved, right? There's going to be some pain and uh, a bunch of back and forth, but pretty much we knew it was going to be lift, raised, and things would go on. I, I look at this, and I'm, I'm not so sure they can do it with this crew. Honest to God. Well, what's going to have to happen, I think, and Carl, you can judge this better than anyone, at some point, it's just going to create further fissures within the party. At some point, Whatever, whoever the Republican leaders are, they're going to have to do do things like the debt ceiling with Democrats. Yeah, well, uh, and that's and, how you get the motion to vacate, right? Exactly, <laughs> and, and and that's why it's you know I'm sorry, Ken Buck. I know your uh, intentions are well, but uh, I, I think you're deluding yourself. Um, Carl, you also had a terrific piece this week on Nancy Pelosi and uh, for all of her achievements. I know you know her well. Uh, you've covered her for a long time. Uh, uh, just Put the context of the Pelosi brand of leadership versus what we're seeing the last well, day or so. I was thinking about Nancy Pelosi yesterday. She was kind of in the back rows back there trying to disappear a little bit. But I'm sure that in Nancy Pelosi's mind, she was going, this is what happens when I'm not in charge, right? Yes. That, 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 that just Nancy Pelosi would not allow this. Now, like Nancy Pelosi had trouble in 2018. She had to make some deals, but she certainly didn't walk out on that floor uh, not knowing that she whether she had the votes or not. I mean, it's just a whole, whole different kind of leadership. I mean, uh, McCarthy sort of rolled the dice. Nancy Pelosi's dice were always loaded in her favor when she wanted to make something happen. Uh, I mean, I think the Democrats, as I said in my story, the Democrats were getting a kick out of it, but they're also scared of it. It's like. These, we have to do certain things, and uh, you know, if they're if they're not willing, how are we going to get things done? But Pelosi, I mean, I said in that story, Al, the most uh, powerful political woman in America to date, and I haven't found anybody who's come up with a another person. Uh, she, you know, she really was a very effective person, and uh, you know. As you can see right now, the Congress is is suffering without her leadership, honestly. Yeah, they sure are. And, Carl, she had her, I know what we call them, fringe mavericks, the squad, if you will. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe not as big, certainly not as 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 crazy as, as, as some of the, you know, defund, disrupt, dismantle guys. But but uh, but she handled them pretty well, didn't she? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, she could be a little brusque, you know, as I said in that story, she the Green New Deal, and she said, oh, the green dream. But I said two things I think really empowered Nancy Pelosi. One, she was a very liberal person with a history of liberalism and her throwaway line, you know, that, well, you know, I had all those uh, protest signs in my basement in San Francisco 30 years ago. I think that that bought her room to push back against the liberals. Two, she was in Trump's face. I mean, literally and figuratively. And I think a lot of her colleagues looked at her and said, you know what, Nancy is the one who is taking on Trump, two impeachments, you know, the finger wag, the ripping up the speech. I think yep. people go, well, maybe we're maybe we're not getting everything we want from Nancy Pelosi, but uh, we're getting enough. James Carville. Uh, Carl, I can't help but draw a contrast. Nancy, the, the majority that the Republicans have is exactly the same majority that Nancy Pelosi yes. has. Said, well, they, they, right. they only got a four-seat majority. Well, that's what she had. And it, it's just right. hard for a human being not to contrast what we had as opposed to what we got. And, and it's almost a perfect comparison. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the numbers are the same. And she, look at what they did. She managed to make it work. And she she knew how to get to everybody. And she knew what people needed and how to win them over. And she did it herself. Uh you know, McCarthy and actually Hakeem Jeffries, who, you know, is the new leader. And he's I think, uh, you know, he's got uh, obviously everybody on both sides think he has potential. But both of these guys are so untested. And we have had, you know, basically 20 years of Nancy Pelosi, uh, even when she was in the minority, would help get things done. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a pretty stark contrast. And it shows you real uh, leadership experience versus no experience whatsoever. So you're, you're up there, but notice better than anybody. But usually when you have something like this, there would be people in the background that would Republicans be plotting and scheming. All right. Yeah, yeah. If they do this, I'm going to put myself in. I don't think anybody wants this freaking job. I mean, I've got to do that Scalise. Oh, no, I don't want to. Are you crazy? I mean, I, Scalise is your guy, right? Yeah. Scalise is, is well. your home state person. Yeah. Right. So to me, he is the logical next choice uh, because uh, he's respected in the conference, what have you. But I was actually talking about this with people yesterday. And I said, he's just Kevin McCarthy wants this job so bad that he is willing to put up with everything because he didn't get it in 2015. This, he's, this is what he worked for. Republicans up there said, this is all he's wanted. For 10 years. So he'll, he's willing to do anything. I said, are other guys willing to do anything? Because uh, Kevin McCarthy wants to say he was speaker. Some of these other guys don't want to say they were failed speakers. And uh, I mean, I think they probably if, if McCarthy, you know, Scalise is, a, is a, a logical alternative. But I also think, you know, it's the classic, the person who's going to take the job can't be the person angling for it, right? You have to kind of sit back and let it come to you. A little bit, and maybe that's Scalise's thinking. But I, you know, it's a fair question: Who wants to be the Speaker of the House? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I, I know. I mean, I'm in talk to this, and I know a lot of these people in a place like this. Everybody gets along, and yeah, we go to the same sure. But I, I, again, I don't have a sense that this is something that he now. What his advantage would be if they come to him and says, "Okay, I'll do it," but these are. 
Right. I'm not have any of this, and it might be yeah. so desperate that they give him that. I, I don't know. Well, that was the Paul Ryan. That's how Ryan. Paul Ryan. You know that they 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 came to him and said, "You got to take it." And he goes, "Well, I'll I'll take it, but not under the conditions that you guys are talking about." But you know, I mean, to use the technical political term, this is a freaking mess. You know, and it's going to be a mess for a while. You cleaned it up too, Carl, and, uh, and, and that uh, you, you know. And uh, you talked a minute ago about how John Boehner, you know, hated Mark Meadows. He also hated Jim Jordan. He said he was a legislative terrorist, and now Jordan was supposed to be coming across yesterday as the reasonable terrorist. I mean, it's yeah. just, Marjorie Taylor Greene calling for uh, unity. You know, it was. It's, yeah. it's 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 pretty amazing, but it's just the the ideology of these. Uh, elements of the party is just not kind of what uh, we've gotten used to over the years. People were always willing to make a deal, right? At some point, yeah. you're going to make a deal. I just don't know the point that some of these Republicans are willing to make a deal. And for some of them, there is no deal. Well, in the days and weeks ahead, everybody out there, uh, you want to know how bad this is or what's going to happen? Read Carl Hulse. Also watch my wife's former colleague, uh, Lisa Desjardins. But Carl, you are the Michelangelo of congressional correspondents. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. I know what a busy day it is for you. Uh, and we're going to keep reading you. I hope we get you back. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, I'm, I, I like talking to guys of my own generation. <laughs> so. I, I see that you went to, to University in Normal, Illinois. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing normal yep. about this. It's the last yeah, yeah. That, that is for sure. And I assure you. The two people that are enjoying this the most are Liz Cheney and John Boehner. They, they, they're, they're more. I, I, I know Boehner is because I haven't been in touch with them, but I've talked to some people uh, who were, and I, I know there's a, a certain uh, schadenfreude there, you know. Yes. All right. Thanks to me. I've got to get to work. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thank it. You. James, for the outrage of the week, my outrage is the uh, the new Republican chairman expected to be chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, and the Oversight uh, uh, Committee chairman uh, uh, from Kentucky. Uh, you know, he's he's kind of easy to forget. I think it's Jim Jim Comer uh, uh, have gotten furious because the White House won't deliver certain documents to them as they begin their never-ending investigations. You, you know, James, I hate to tell him. They're not even congressmen right now. They sent that letter out. Not only it wasn't only before they were in the majority, but as Carl Hulse pointed out, until they elect the speaker, they didn't even. They, there's not even an official Congress. So why are they going to be mad about that? You know why? Because they're going to be mad about everything. They're going to be irrational. They'll be screaming and yelling about anything. About anything. And Jim Jordan is one of the nastiest human beings on the face of this planet, with a very, very unsavory background. So this is just the first shot and what'll be a lot of cheap shots this year. So is it, are they getting paid now? I guess they can't get paid now if they're not officially well, members. And they can't be. people, you, you know, I mean, uh, it, it can add up if you just keep doing this and, you know, you, right. you know, a lot of them are not that wealthy. Right. Uh, and they go back and forth home, and they got kids in school and everything else. Right, right. I, my brother, I'm kind of sad to have this one, but it's got to be noticed. It is highly likely that New Orleans will end up with the highest murder rate of any mm -hmm. city in the United States. 
in, in 2019, we had the lowest murder rate we've had since, I think, 1970 or 1971. And, you know, of course, it, it, it breaks your heart. And when you look at the map of who, where people are being killed and who's being killed, you, you can understand it. And you say, well, New Orleans has a lot of poverty. Yeah, yeah it does. So, so does Baltimore. So, so does Newark. Uh, so does St. Louis. All right. So, so does Chicago. And it, it, it is, this is not a good statistic and it needs to be addressed because it is it, really hurting people. It sure does. All right. Please keep those thoughts coming in. We'll keep our outrages coming in. Uh, and uh, and thank you. Here are our listener questions. The first week of this year, John in Chicago says, how can Democrats support a candidate for president in the 2024 elections? I guess John's assuming Biden doesn't run, which Biden says he is going to run. But how, how can they support another candidate if it isn't Vice President Harris? Wouldn't that be an insult to her, John asks? No. I mean, I understand the question, and but, you know, we live in an electoral system. I mean, no one gets anointed anything. Right. And, I, you know, I'm, I, she would certainly be taken seriously if she was a candidate, but I don't, I don't really see her scaring anybody off. No, no. And I don't think that, I, I don't think very many Democratic voters would be insulted if she drew opposition. At all. Yeah. Agree. Totally. Stephen in Scranton, Pennsylvania says, ah. says, can't they just impeach this Santos character? Stephen, I'll tell you what, uh, they, they, they will seat him as, as, as Carl Hulse explained. There's no House of Representatives today. They have to have a speaker, uh, to have a house. And when they do uh, get a speaker, they will seat, uh, Mr. Santos. Uh, but then they, then they, they have the authority to evict him. Now, with the Republicans narrow margin, uh, I think that's unlikely, but he faces a lot of investigations. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think Mr. Santos is a long-termer. You know, uh, let's go to, we've been talking about football, let's go to a football analogy. If they have their third string uh, safety in the cornerback in the game, and he's got a, a, a hurt leg, you know what you do? You pick on him. You throw where he is every time. Well, that's what they got in Santos, and the Democrats need to exploit this again and again and again for everything it's worth. If they want to try to keep in there, fine. Make them pay every day, every day. And, and he's a, a, a big load on their back and just keep adding anvils to their back. Michael and Atlanta, remember a couple of weeks ago we raised the possibility of Trump being convicted or about to be convicted and then apologizing, admitting guilt, accepting conditions and unconceivably being pardoned. Uh, and Michael says, do you guys actually believe Trump would apologize or admit guilt? You know, when people are faced with jail time, there's no telling what they'll do. I, look, I think the conversation it might be more provocative than real, but I don't know that. But he is in unbelievable legal jeopardy. The other thing is, it, it, one day Trump became almost irrelevant. No one cares about him anymore. I mean, just occupied so much space in our brains for so long. 
and then poof, they don't, they, they're, even the, the House crazy caucus doesn't respond to it. The guy's got no power left. He's got no life left. And if he thinks he's going to jail, you do anything you can to stay out of jail. Yeah. You don't know. Charles in Christchurch, New Zealand. My, I, I tell you, high on my bucket list is I want to go to New Zealand. I, I hear it's such a great place. Um, uh, Charles asked, if Trump is jail or forced to admit his crimes to get a political plea, plea deal, will politicians like Elise Stefanik pay a price politically? Good question, Charles. I mean, certainly Trump will. Uh, Stefanik was the anti-Trumper, the head of the House moderates, who suddenly saw different handwriting on the wall and did a, she did a 180. She didn't do a 179 and a half. She did a 180. She, she became a total Trumper. She went to that awful rally down in Oklahoma uh, in which uh, Herman Cain and other people died. Uh, she's been supporting some of the most really vicious right-wingers in New York, uh, and she's on board. I don't know. If, it depends. In the Republican Party, she may not pay a price. Well, I think the price, you know, first of all, they paid an incredible price. I mean, the, the congressional elections of 2022, the result, given every kind of historical fact that we knew, every background thing, I mean, it should have been a wipeout. Right. And mm -hmm. the fact that it wasn't was, was was just a stunning result. So, A, they have paid a price and they paid it because three times more Republicans voted Democratic than Democrats voted Republican. That's why they paid the price and they paid the price among independents. I mean, it, they, they paid a wretched price uh, on Election Day 2022. And I as we pointed out, talked about earlier, the contrast between the Democrats with a four-vote majority and this, I don't know if that can be lost on people that easily. You know, and you, because I'm a Democrat, I look at everything like a Democrat. If I were a Republican, I would be so disgusted and demoralized by my party's behavior, I, 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 I just be, I'd be depressed beyond end. And I, I just can't, I, I just got to believe this is going to have some lingering consequence. And will it cause polls to flip overnight and Democrats to be ahead by 10 on the congressional generic ballot? No, I don't think that's going to happen. But but th this has to have consequences going forward. I just can't imagine it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, you would certainly, uh, you would certainly uh, think so. Um, Jeff in St. Pete, Florida asked James, what does it say about the Democrats as a political party where Liz Cheney, a Republican, was the most aggressive person on the January 6th committee? Well, it says that that Benny Thompson and the Democrats were smart. All right. And, and you know, it wasn't that, that people like him, and God knows, I hope he gets well soon. Our, our friend and guest, Jamie Raskin, was not really aggressive or uh, or any number of, uh, so I think Congressman Benny Thompson did a, a, a very good job as a chair. And, uh, I, you know, I think it was a smart play by the Democrats to have Liz Cheney out front. And, and the other thing is, the, the, however monumentally stupid that you think Kevin McCarthy is, you have no idea. I, I mean, the reason that Liz Cheney had that kind of prominence, and to some extent Adam Kinsey, is he... He, he refused to put people on the committee. But a lot of this was with Kevin McCarthy, you know, who 
This guy doesn't understand the basic rule of once you pull a pin on a freaking grenade, you're supposed to throw it and not pass it around. I, I mean, it, so is it just another demonstration of what, what a horrible leader Kevin McCarthy is? Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, and, and also I would say that uh, uh, it was clear that behind the scenes, but almost from the beginning, uh, Nancy Pelosi was very eager for Liz Cheney to take that prominent role. Uh, that was a wise, another wise Pelosi uh, choice. These are two people, two women who I don't think ever spoke to each other, James, but, you know, before this. And I think they came away with uh, with real mutual admiration, uh, even even with sharp ideological differences. Yeah, I, th I think it, it, to some extent there are similar people. I know both of them fairly well, but you know, I might have ideological differences. But uh, I, I mean, that's two women I, I don't ever want to cross in my life. I'll tell you that. <laughs> that's for sure. Kevin in Vashon Island, Washington says, I, "I love this question, Kevin. If the pressure gets too great, why wouldn't Donald Trump fly to Saudi Arabia and live out the rest of his years in exile and comfort and comfortable misogyny?" Uh, with MBS. I just love that prospect. I really do. I it's going to happen. Uh, I don't know what the Saudis are today. God knows he gave them everything they wanted. Uh, they both have the, the, the same values, uh, the same uh, integrity, uh, and it would be a great place for Donald to live the rest of his life. But, um, you know, Kevin, I'm afraid it ain't going to happen. You know, it, it, it probably won't, just like it probably won't happen that he gets part but I got to tell you, and, you know, you talk to a lot of high-end legal people, and, and he is in significant legal jeopardy. I mean, yeah. significant. And, you, you know, you don't know. In that Olivia Nuzzi, I might be pronouncing her name wrong, but I do I apologize to her, piece on what his life is like now, it was really, it was in New York Magazine. And people should read this. There, it, to the extent that you, that anybody detests Donald Trump so much as they like the fact that he's miserable, let me tell you something. He is one miserable dude. Okay, I, that I can promise you. Couldn't happen a more deserving dude uh, either, James. Um, I, mean, I, I don't put any of this. I, I, I would put it in the unlikely category, but anything is possible, given the, the, the jeopardy that he's in right now. And the fact that he doesn't have, they don't have any more power. Yeah. But no one gives a shit about him. It, and it's hard to, to transition out of that, but he just doesn't. James, our final question for the first week of the year comes, appropriately enough, from your home state, Stephen, in Morgan City, Louisiana. Wow, St. Mary Parish. And Stephen, good question, says small donor donations fuel politics, most divisive figures like Green, Trump and AOC. Given the anger fundraisers have to whip up to generate these donations, should we be more worried about small donations than the big ones? So let me tell you a story. I was talking about Morgan City. Is, uh, it, it, the people used to say, if you ever had a desire to get your ass beat, just show up at a bar in Morgan City and somebody will accommodate you really fast. <laughs> right on the Gulf, it's a big kind of oil center. There's a lot of uh, oil-filled roughneck people that live there. So I was talking to a friend of mine who's a big lobbyist in Baton Rouge. And he said, you can't do anything. And he said, and the reason is this. And he put a cell phone up. And all they do is instantly see what's trending out there, how much 
you know, how many hits they get and who's following them, how many small donors they get, where they come. And the, the, if that's happening in the Louisiana legislature, you can't imagine what it's like in the Congress. So Lauren Bobert or, or, or Paul Golser, you know, they're going and people say, it's great. You, you, you got this much, you raise this much money overnight. And the, the, the congressional leadership, as Carl pointed out, you know, used to be even conservatives wanted a post office of, of you know, cloverleaf interchange of, of money for a stadium or something like that. All these people care about is social media and how many followers they have and how much small donors up they make. And, and it's it's enormously disruptive to the country and to democracy. I, I, it's a very good question coming from my friend in St. Mary Parish. I can tell you that. Yeah, Stephen, I agree it is. And there's a worry. Um, I'm even more worried about dark money. Uh, you know, my biggest worry, I'm, I'm, I'm not dismissing what you're saying at all, but the biggest fear I have is dark money, uh, undisclosed secret money, motives of why they're giving it, why we don't know uh, what people have committed to, to promise to for it. Uh, that's my that's that's my top worry. And then we'll, you know, put yours on the on the agenda next. You know, it, it's like having two kids. You, you can love them both. But they're both real problems. Your kids were never any problems, James. You know, I was kind of blessed. I mean, the truth of the matter is, well, my seventh grade girl, there's, there's nothing worse than that. But And when do, when do we get a new Carville? Uh, if I had to guess, uh, today is what? The 24th of January. That, my, that was my brother who's deceased. And my, that, that's what my daughter says. She really wants to have a baby that day. But I don't think she has any say-so in this process. I think that. <laughs> no, no, no. No, my, my, I, I will just tell you one story for our first child. My wife was NBC White House correspondent. And we thought the child was coming three or four days later. And she did a stand-up in front of the White House uh, at, uh, at 6.30 at night. And eight hours later, she gave birth in Georgetown Hospital. So that wasn't, that day wasn't planned. Right. Yeah. Like I say, they have their own schedule. They do. All right. Thanks for all those questions. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics World Run with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicsworldroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor's real paper in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them, because when you do, you make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. 